Good morning. Again, my name is Jared. I have an honor to open God's Word uh, for all of us this morning, but I, I want to say first, right out of the gates, Merry Christmas. We're in this season. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's a good season. We're feeling it. We're talking about it. Oof. It's a full season. It's like, hey, let's take the most joyful month we've got in the year and let's cram as much as we possibly can into it. And so some of us are feeling that, but hopefully we're present-minded in this season to, to push back on, on some of that hecticness and some of that busyness and, and to learn to say no to some good things in order to say yes to really keeping our own souls and to coming into the presence of the Lord and to prioritizing prayer and worship and serving the people around us. Um, this series in Advent, Advent is a Latin word that means arrival, um, and so in this season of Advent in December and Christmas, we're looking toward the, we're rehearsing, we're remembering the arrival of Jesus in the flesh. And so the very first week, two weeks ago, and we were in John chapter 1, the first week was about how Jesus is the light and how he is the life of men and how he is the hope of the world and how he comes to bring us home to himself. He comes to us to bring us home to himself. And the second week, last week, was about how Jesus particularly made his home among us. John 1.14 says that he took on flesh. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, descended, condescended to us, took on flesh and lived among us to draw us home to himself. And we showed this video of this church plant in Hostomel, Ukraine. You can find that on our YouTube channel. It's about a 10-minute video of this story of this church plant just arising, like Dave was saying, uh, out of need. They initially planted or, or in container homes and then realized, whoa, these people need to be brought together for the sake of worship. And so they've built this building and they're about 65% there. And so we want to send some generous funds their way to help them get over the finish line and complete this building that these residents are gathering in to worship. But it's also a warming center as well because these container homes, they don't have heat. And so they'll gather in these cold days in Ukraine uh, to be warm and to have community. And there's kitchen and showers and, and other things in this building for these folks in Hostomel, Ukraine. This week is about how Jesus has come to us in order to make a way for us to come to him, and then how he sends us to invite others to come to him as well. So really, uh, we're, we're just kind of circling the same theme in this Advent season, how Jesus comes to make his home with us. He comes to help us make our home with God, and then he sends us to other people to help them make their home with him. Our mission is to make disciples. That's what we're about as a church community. We do it well in some areas. We've got a lot of room for improvement in other areas, but it's something. Making disciples is something that we've been consistently giving ourselves to since our inception, since we were planted initially in 2015. We're in First uh, Peter this morning, so you can go there in, the, in, in your Bibles or the apps on your phone. There's black Bibles around the room. Go to First Peter if you would, and I just want to frame uh, I want to frame how Peter is writing and who he is writing to, what he's writing for. Um, Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's always in the, in the lists of disciples. Peter is always mentioned 
first. He kind of takes the spokesman role around in Jesus' band of 12 apostles or disciples. And what Peter is doing in this moment in First Peter is he's writing to a scattered and a suffering church. He's writing somewhere around A.D. 62 or 63, uh, these people, he'll, he'll write, and we'll read it in just a moment in, in 1 Peter 1, he's writing to the, the dispersion. And so this is, these are communities of Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire and now are marginalized and pushed to the side and squeezed, but nonetheless, they are gathering together and they are keeping their hope on Jesus. And so that's what Peter is writing to urge them to do, to set their hope fully on Jesus and to trust him, to take him at his word, that he is going to come through on his promises. His promises primarily are reconciliation with God, that he comes to bring us reconciliation with God, with our maker, but also that to, to help us set our hope fully on this resurrection in our life to come, that for us, for followers of him, death is not the end. Death is just a doorway to life abundant, unlike we have ever experienced. So here is how Peter opens his letter to these suffering and squeezed Christians. I want to read First Peter just for context here, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, but I want you to know this. Our text this morning is actually chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So we're just doing some background work. The scriptures tell us to, um, to, to read the Word of God publicly, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do as students of God's Word this morning. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the author, Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He's writing to them in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, in Bithynia. And he says, I'm writing according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Some things are happening to them that he wants them to be aware that God, this is all a part of God's plan, as hard as that is to accept. He's writing in the sanctification of the Spirit. God is up to something in them, transforming them. He's writing for their obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That means that they're forgiven fully. They're reconciled fully. Therefore, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he writes. And then listen to this worship here. Blessed be the, Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. Notice these descriptions. Our inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this you rejoice, this truth. Though now for a little while, if necessary though, you have been grieved by various trials. They're suffering. Why? Why have they, why have they been grieved? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You're waiting for this, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, so the people who came before all of these disciples in the time of Jesus, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched the scriptures, they inquired carefully, inquiring what, kind, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of Christ. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. As they're looking to the scriptures for this Messiah, they're not serving themselves, but they're actually serving you, people who would come after them. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things into which angels long to look. Therefore, so in light of that gospel and that goodness, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, listen to this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus' second advent, his return. Set your mind fully on that hope that he is coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. These people have been displaced. Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but they were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest or revealed or made visible in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another then, earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He quotes the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And here's our text for this morning. Notice this phrase, as you come to him, this God who has done all of this for you, as you come to him, a living stone who is rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. You, church, yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture In Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion, or Jerusalem, or Israel, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, Then whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us? Would you help us to understand in new ways what's happening in your scriptures? What's happening in this word to us? Would you convict us? Would you um, embed hope deep within us? Would you, um, would you influence us however you mean to this morning, please? Build us up, increase our faith, strengthen us as your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this phrase, um, look, at ver- look at verse 4. That's where we're going to start here, and we're going to really hang on this phrase, these five words. As you come to him. As you come to him. That is today's big idea. As you come to him. These five words are fundamental to practicing our faith. What we're going to do is look at seven ways that we come to him in this text and that he does something for us. He's going to be reminding us and helping us understand and strengthening us. These five words are fundamental to practicing our faith as you come to him. We never outgrow this phase of life with God as you come to him. Why? Because this isn't a phase of life with God. As you come to him is life with God. Life with God is coming to him. We have to come to him in order to have life and to live life with him. The scriptures in Hebrews chapter 11 say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because one must believe that he exists and that he earnestly rewards those who seek him. As you come to him, as I come to him, as we come to him, is fundamental to our life with God. Uh, Earlier in chapter 1, we read that Peter, he urged these disciples as he's writing to them to set their hope fully on Jesus Christ. To set their hope fully on him which is what Advent is about for us. It's a time and a season where we set our hope fully on him. We're setting our hope and our view and our minds and our hearts on the fact that Jesus has come. He has come for us. That's the first Advent. And we're rehearsing that he's coming again as well. We're looking, we're looking behind to what has occurred, he has come, but we're also looking forward to what will occur, his promise to return to us. So seven points quickly here, um, just in succession. These are observations out of this text. You'll make more observations, but here are seven that I've made that I want to bring and lay before us this morning. Number one, as you come to him, Peter, one of Jesus' key friends and disciples, he wants us to experience who Jesus really is. So he writes, as you come to him in verse 4, What Peter is implying is that there is this continual and present tense interactive relationship with Jesus Christ available to us. Just like in our human relationships, the only way to know someone and to be known by someone is to spend time with them, right? 
That's the only way to actually know someone and be known is to spend time. Being with Jesus is like this nuclear reactor for our souls. It's the being in his presence and coming to him with our need is, is, is where the power is, where the energy is. It's where we, we come to him for strength. We come to him for wisdom. We come to him for knowledge. We come to him for comfort. We come to him for power. We come to him for spiritual vigor and energy. And one thing that we see in verse 4 is we see that, that, that Peter is he's alerting these disciples that he is writing to He's, he's alerting them to the reality that they are living in a world or in a period where there are warring value systems. The world and God's way are at war. And the way that we see that is, he says, he, Jesus is, as, as you come to him, this living stone, he is rejected. He's rejected by men. But in the sight of God, Jesus He's holy, and he is precious, or he is chosen, and he is precious. He's precious in God's sight. There's a kind of affinity and affection between Jesus and the Father. Just because the world has made their judgments on Jesus does not mean that the world's judgments on who Jesus is are actually true. Like in the same way that you and I have experienced when people make judgments about us, just because they have made judgments about us doesn't necessarily make those judgments true, right? The world has said some things about Jesus that aren't necessarily true. Now, we've spent the last two weeks in John's gospel in chapter one, where we saw that Jesus came to his own people. He came to these Jewish people that God had called out of the nations. He didn't call them out because they were awesome. He actually called them out because they were small and and marginalized. and, And he wanted to make a name for himself through them among the nations. He came to his own people, but his own people didn't receive him. They actually rejected him. But John chapter 1 tells us, but to all who did receive him. They received something from God entirely unique and special. They were reborn. They were regenerated. They were made sons and daughters, children of God, given the right of sonship, given the right of adoption, the right to be named as legitimate sons and daughters within God's family. And so as people, as we, as disciples, as we come to believe Jesus, we're actually like people who have defected. We have defected from one system and are now living in another system. We were at one time living in darkness. And now we are living in the light of God's marvelous presence and his truth. As you come to him, Peter wants us to wrestle and to experience who Jesus is. The world may hate him, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and he is precious. Number two. As you come to him, verse 5, understand that Jesus is doing something big and he is doing something unique in and through his church. He's doing something profound through his church. Peter says in verse 5, as you come to him, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. What Peter is saying is that 
These individual disciples, then and now, are like these living blocks that link together and that form this massive interlocked structure. Don't think little stone. Think massive, solid stone that is laid one on another, forming this structure that houses the very real presence of God. We know in verse 5 that Peter is talking about the temple because he's using this language of spiritual house and of priesthood and of spiritual sacrifices. And so what Peter is doing to this marginalized people who, who really look pretty pitiful in the eyes of the world is he's describing to them that there is something beautiful and majestic that God is doing in you, though you don't see it and the world doesn't see it. God is up to something in you. And so Peter is illustrating how the church becomes a new temple where God himself personally dwells with his people, in his people, through his people. A temple is a place where the presence of a God dwells. So temples are these thin spaces where gods of whatever religion and men meet together according to the rules of that religion. Temple in the Bible is a very, very, very big theme. It's a mega theme in the scriptures. God's purpose in the new covenant was to no longer meet with his people through these this temple system or the tabernacle, the temple, then the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and rebuilt by the exiles who returned to Jerusalem. His purpose was to no longer meet with people through the temple or through the sacrificial system, but actually through his son, who would be the mediator between God and men and through his son's sacrifice. And so what the new covenant, what the new testament opens up for us is that Jesus is this new meeting place of God where we meet with God through his son who now dwells within each of us by his spirit making us essentially many temples who then take the presence of God wherever we go, bring his presence into the world around us, infiltrate darkness as these bastions and beachheads of light where God's presence and his spirit dwell within us. Jesus is using all of life in a unique way. Jesus is using all of life as this church family, this community, as one of the ways that he is bringing his presence into a dark world, that he is using us to push back darkness. So a few examples through gospel proclamation and the prayers of this community right here, disciples are being made and are being baptized. This year, we baptize, we've baptized five people. Last year, we baptized somewhere around 14. So we go in these seasons of ebb and flow. Last year, we gave a little over $30,000 out of our uh, budget for the sake of personally funding for church plants and for church planters where they are doing similar work in their communities that we are doing here. Over our lifetime, we have helped to plant another three churches directly Two of those churches, one is Doxa in downtown Coeur d'Alene and one is Revelation in downtown Coeur d'Alene. We want the Inland Northwest to be saturated with the good news of Jesus. 
We're partners with a, a, a network, a church planning network called Acts 29, and we send funds to Acts 29 every single month as well. And through our partnership with Acts 29, we've had our hands in the planting of well over 20 churches in the West here in the United States. We regularly support missionaries, global missionaries financially. Just here in the context of our Sunday gatherings, we're averaging somewhere around 50 kids who are being discipled and taught what it is to know and be known by Jesus every single week by so many of you in the room who every single week are investing in them. Over 50 kids, we feel that when they all rush into the room or when they leave the room, right? Look at all the chairs that are open. They weren't open earlier when the kids were here this morning. Averaging somewhere around 18 middle schoolers and high schoolers who are being actively discipled in youth group as well. Just this last April, we commissioned 12 deacons to help carry gospel ministry forward in our church. And so I'm saying all of that and laying that before you. That's not everything. That's not even close to everything that he's doing in front of us. But I just want to lay a few significant things before you and say, yeah, we're ordinary. Yeah, we're scrappy. But Jesus is doing some pretty profound things in and through us. And he's using us along with all of the other faithful churches in our area to proclaim his excellencies and to push back darkness. Praise be to God. So as you come to him, understand that Jesus is doing something big and unique in and through his church, of which we are one of them. One of them. Number three, as you come to him, remember that his gospel is rooted in ancient truth. We're in verses six through eight here. Uh, I just want to say this for the record. There's a lot of change coming up. Things are going to look different at Templins. They're going to feel different at Templins. All of Life Church, this community is committed to keeping the message of Jesus central according to the biblical record, which is enduring, which is reliable and true, which is consistent. I'm trying to say we're committed to gospel proclamation and biblical teaching and biblical ethics. Peter had all of this in mind when he's writing to this early church in, in verses 6 through 8. He says, in verse 6, he says, for it stands in Scripture. And then what he does is he reaches back to the Hebrew Bible in Isaiah 28, that this cornerstone, this prophesied Messiah is holy and precious. And though the builders of this the Jewish system of worship have rejected him, he is this Messiah. Jesus is the cornerstone. So Peter and these apostles, they're not making it up as they go. They're not making things up as they go. They're actually putting the pieces of the Hebrew Bible together and they're going, oh my, he has been revealed. The one that we've been looking for for 15 centuries is here in the flesh. We know him. He's got a name. He's got a zip code. He's got, we know the look in his eyes, the look of his skin, the tenor of his voice. We know him. He's Jesus born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. The Hebrew Bible that they had been memorizing since young kids is impressively pointing to Jesus. I did some pretty sloppy research earlier this week, and at a minimum, the, old, the, the New Testament refers, reaches back, and quotes the, 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 the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament a minimum of 146 times. That's a minimum. Like I didn't put anything in there that didn't belong in there, but I know I missed some stuff. At least 146 times the New Testament is going, 
so it would be fulfilled, so it would be fulfilled. So constantly, these disciples, when they're testifying about the reality of Jesus to their neighbors and to their community, they're saying things like, it is written in the Hebrew Bible. According to the scriptures, this thing has been fulfilled in Christ. According to the scriptures. And so Peter, here in verse 6, he quotes Isaiah 28 in saying that Jesus is the foundation He's the one that the Hebrew Bible has been foretelling and talking about. This cornerstone is actually the foundation stone. It's the first stone that gets laid and everything else, the church gets built off of him. Everything else gets built off of this cornerstone. Many people, they, uh, they, they, they turn to Jesus and, and, and they, they loved him then. Crowds were clamoring for his attention. But many people uh, today turn to him and clamor for his attention. We recognize that he is the cornerstone, that he is Messiah, that he is the redeemer of all things, that he is the actual son of God and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In his day, some people hated him. And there are people who hate him today. And Jesus his claim to divinity, his claim to be God is an obstacle stone that trips them up and that scandalizes them. In verse 8, where it said, a stone of stumbling, and he is a rock of offense. That word offense is scandala in the Greek. It's where we get our word scandal. His claim to be God scandalizes the world. All of this was foretold centuries before through the prophets. Isaiah 53, he's saying, when Messiah comes, he's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be misunderstood. People are going to distort his teaching. And so religions like Mormonism and like Jehovah's Witnesses, they distort the biblical record and they teach things that are not consistent with the Hebrew Bible. And with the New Testament. Our New Testament here is complete and needs no revisions and no expansions. The canon is closed. We have all that we need from both Old and New Testaments to show us who Jesus is. The Old Testament contains the promise of how God would bring redemption. The New Testament contains the record of Jesus' fulfillment that redemption has come through Messiah who has been revealed and Jews and Gentiles alike are invited to come to him. As you come to him, remember that Jesus' gospel is rooted in ancient truth and needs nobody toying with it or adding to it. It's been revealed in Scripture. Number four, as you come to him, there are things that Jesus will say and do that will mess with you. The honesty of the Bible is one of the things that draws me to it, and the honesty of the Bible is one of the things that makes me really wrestle with it. I don't know about you. You're reading some stuff in there that you're like, I don't know. Do I have to? Did they really? God, are you really speaking? I hope we can be honest with the parts of the Bible that are hard for us. They're hard for us to swallow. In the last part of verse 8, this one used to be like a pill that was stuck sideways in my throat. You know that feeling? It says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
Jesus will mess with your worldview. He'll mess with your theology. He'll mess with your way of life, the way that you understand the world. Jesus will expose your selfishness. He exposes my selfishness. He exposes my pride. He'll expose yours. My lack of wisdom, my folly, my foolishness. He exposes our lack of wisdom. Jesus does not just come to reshape pieces of us. He comes to take over and to completely remodel us from the ground up. That's what he's here to do in you and in me and in us. He'll present ideas in his Bible, like that last part of verse 8, where it said that people who reject him were destined to do just that. This word destined, it, it can be translated, they were placed there for that, they were appointed for that, they were put there for that. Destined is a really good word for it. Other parts of the Bible, they say similarly uncomfortable things. Jude chapter 4, this Jude is Jesus' brother. He's writing scripture. Apparently, he believes that his own brother is God. That's a convincing proof that Jesus might have been Messiah. Jude writes in verse 4, he says, For certain people, they've crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago they were, quote, designated for this condemnation. They were ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 16, Solomon, wise, wise man, he writes this, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Not to mention Genesis 3 or Romans 9 or Acts 9. Not to mention Ephesians 1 and 2 or Jeremiah chapter 1 or the early chapters of Ezekiel or Isaiah 6. Like the scriptures are consistently pointing to God's freedom among his creation. All of life is committed to learning from Jesus in our surrender. We're committed to learning even the uncomfortable things in his word that challenge our worldviews, that challenge our theology, that challenge our way of seeing the world. The nature of surrender is that it doesn't come easy. Like what team, what army wants to surrender? What person wants to surrender? Surrender is a dirty word. It's a dirty word because it feels horrible in the moment because you have to give something up in order to do that. But true worship can only come from a place of surrender. True worship can only come from a place of surrender. You only worship what you surrender to. You don't worship the things you're not surrendered to. You stand above them. The Bible has an abundance of uncomfortable truth for us. Some of the biblical claims of God's sovereignty, I think they're here to sober us. I think they're here to make us consider, even if just for a moment that there is an order to things, there's a structure to ultimate authority and accountability for every person. The scripture says that every mouth will be stopped and will give an account to God for our life and our words and our actions and everything. We will give an account. Some people who are far from God and who reject God will fall on the ground in terror. Don't buy this notion that when I get to heaven, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say that, and I'm going to ask him, why did he do this? No, you're not. You're going to hit the ground on your face in the dirt of the earth. So the scriptures say that some people are going to cry out that the rocks would crush them. They just want to get out of that terror. 
for people who don't know the Lord, but for people who are surrendered to creator, to him, we're gonna fall on our faces too in worship and in awe and in surrender and in love. And we're gonna be comforted by God, the judge of all things, the judge of the living and the dead. God counsels us, we don't counsel him. God created us, we did not create him. God created the cosmos. We can hardly create rocks. So for us to complain, why have you done these things this way? As if we're God's counselor is to quickly outpunt our coverage. Like Job. God had some things to say to Job. Brace yourself like a man. I'm going to say some things to you. Where were you and I? 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 And Job went, I've spoken too soon. Remember though, Like in that, in that seriousness of God's holiness and who he is, remember that if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is really like, look at the way Jesus is in the Bible. If you want to know the heart of God truly, look at Jesus in the scriptures. He is the perfect imprint and the image of God. He's really good, really good. And there is a lot about him that makes me really uncomfortable. His truth stings. His power and authority overwhelm me. His forgiveness comforts me in a way that human forgiveness doesn't. As you come to him, there are things that he is going to say and do that will mess with you. Stay with him in the tension. Stay with him in the tension. Stay with him in the tension. Number five, as you come to him, remember that God's plan for y'all is bigger than your plan for you. Now, I'm a northerner. I don't get a right to say, I'm a Yankee. I don't get a right to say y'all. When I say it, it just sounds funny. But I want you to notice the plurals here. I want you to notice the plurals in verses nine and 10. Go figure. Peter is actually pointing back to the Hebrew Bible again. He's pointing to Exodus chapter 19 where God says to Moses, for the people of Israel, Moses is a prophet. God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to all the people of Israel. And so Peter writes to this this dispersion, these exiles in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. He's pointing them to what God has been doing throughout history and redemption. He's saying, you're a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. By chosen race, Peter means that God is making a new chosen people for himself through his chosen one. Remember what was said in verse 4, in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. God's making a new people group out of all of the peoples of the earth, his church. You could think of it like a new spiritual ethnicity, even. One writer says, Christians are blood relatives joined together by the blood of Christ. We are brothers and sisters truly in the family of God. 
Edmund Clowney, a theologian, he also writes this. He says, it'll be on the screen, God's choice of his precious cornerstone rebukes human arrogance. Peter now spells out the wonder of God's salvation. The delight that the Father has in his Son is actually given to us. And as Jesus is precious to the Father, so we're made precious. As Christ is the cornerstone of God's temple, so we are stones in that house of God. Jesus is the living stone. We too are living stones born again by his resurrection life. The blessing of salvation is ours through faith because it's by faith that we come to him in the first place as you come to him. You must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So by chosen race, we're a a new spiritual ethnicity. By royal priesthood, Peter means that we're Jesus' sent ones who are sent out to declare him and to proclaim his reality and to proclaim his excellency and to draw others in, to invite others into the family of God without qualification. The qualification is belief in Christ. That's the qualification. Anybody who is willing to surrender to Jesus Christ as a a valued place in his family. By holy nation, Peter means that we're set apart and we're chosen citizens whose ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Our chosen citizenship is not in the United States. It's not in political groups. It's not in our ethnicity, as important as some of those things are. Ultimately, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and that's where our ultimate allegiance lies with every decision. No exceptions. So take heart. God's plan for us is bigger than any one of us. Every single time you see the word you in verses 9 and 10, it's a plural you. He's speaking of the community of God's people. So by joining Jesus' church, by joining him through faith and, and embedding ourselves in the life of a local church, you and I are being swept up into the story of redemption, into the story of God, into this story, which, which the story of God is why, and his glory is why the earth, why the universe, why everything else exists. As you come to him, remember that God's plan for y'all is bigger than your plan for you. Number six, as you come to him bearing witness is how he says that we can honor him, that you may proclaim his excellencies that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All of life, this church community, we, we desire and we exist to display God's excellencies through our witness. That's why we exist. That's our whole reason for being, is to display his excellencies. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 13 says this, through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And then he clarifies what that is. That is the fruit of lips, lips that acknowledge him. Lips that speak the good news of his arrival and his redemption, that speak his name. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. One of the choicest ways that you and I have to glorify God is to give him thanks in private and to give him thanks in public for the good things and for the hard things, for the things that we're experiencing. 
One of the key ways that you and I can live evangelistically is to point to the goodness of Jesus and to say the name of Jesus in our conversations, to not whisper it in the coffee shop, but just to say it as directly as we would our husband or wife or friend or fellow athlete, to just say it, to not mute it, to speak regularly the name of Jesus in our situations and in our stories as often as we can. So we do good, and we tell people why we do good. We don't shrink back. Our why is Jesus Christ. He is our why. We don't ever depart from him. We don't ever move beyond him. So if you want to honor him, come to him. If you want to honor him, come into his presence, which means you talk to him. If you want to honor him, then you talk about him as unapologetically and as honestly as you possibly can. As you come to him, bearing witness is how he says we can honor him. Here's the last point, number seven. As you come to him, surrender to him because he is merciful. As you come to him, surrender to him because he's merciful. This is what communion is. This is what we're doing when we are taking communion together as a church, which is what we'll do in just a moment. Communion is this picture for us of the mercy of Christ. These elements are not just crackers and juice. These elements are symbols of Jesus' perfection, his perfect life, his perfect record given to you and I just by faith. We say, Lord, I believe, and he says, I take your sin, I give you my righteousness, you're covered forever. I've spilled my blood, which is what the cup represents, to show us tangibly, powerfully, authoritatively, that the Lamb of God, the Son of God, has been sacrificed for the sins of the world. And without the shedding of blood, without the innocent giving their life for the guilty, there can be no forgiveness for sins according to the plan of God. And so Jesus has said, my life I have lived for you, my blood I have spilled in your place that you might become true sons and daughters. And so when we come to the table, he is preaching to us and he is proclaiming to us the reality of who he is and his power. We can only come to him because he has first come to us. We can only love him because he has first loved us. So this morning, as we take communion together, this is what we're remembering. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. I trust that you are coming again. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to to know Jesus and to come to him. Help us to not shy away with the guilt that we carry, the shame that we carry, the grief that we carry, the unknowns that we carry, the ignorance that we carry, even the pride that we carry. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be a people who are regularly coming to you, Jesus, to surrender to you. Make it so, in Jesus' name, amen.